What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Almost three decades later, Double Nickel's On the Dime by the Minutemen stands as one of the most influential albums of its era. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. We'll be talking with Mike Watt of the Minutemen, and we're also going to review new albums by Death Cab for Cutie and Lady Gaga. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Joy, my dream, tell me yes, baby, loud, should there be a mess? The pieces you don't need are mine. Take my time. I'll show you cloud night. We already live in a world of iTunes, the iPod, and the iPad. Are we ready for the iCloud? Jim and I have spent considerable time on this show in the last few months talking about this notion of the cloud-based music system that allows people to access their music anywhere, anytime they want. In the last few weeks, Amazon and Google have rolled out their versions of the Celestial Jukebox, the paradise of unlimited storage. You put your music up in the cloud, you can get it anywhere, anytime you want. Now Apple is jumping into the game. They're in the final stages of negotiations with the major record labels to get licensing for their cloud-based system. That's a step different from where Amazon and Google went. Amazon and Google just jumped into the cloud without securing these licenses. Apple is approaching it much more methodically. Supposedly, they have deals in place with three of the four majors, Sony, EMI, and Warner, and they're about to secure a deal with Universal. The publishing companies are next. Once those deals are in place, there is talk that we will see an iCloud-based system in place for the 200 million people who have iTunes accounts by the end of this year, uh, maybe sooner. The system that Apple is going to introduce has a lot of advantages over what Amazon and Google are currently running. The main difference is that the Amazon and Google cloud-based services are essentially storage systems requiring people to upload their music. It's a laborious process. It can take hours. So you have to upload all your music in order to access it. With the Apple-based system, what they're looking at is basically all you need to do is have an iTunes account, and you will be able to access it with any device of your choosing anywhere you want. It's a major upgrade. Apple is being really secretive about it so far. They haven't said exactly what they're going to offer. There is some speculation that they will require people to pay for this service in addition to their iTunes downloads. But there's also quite a bit of speculation that people are more than willing to pay for this. This is the dream of the Celestial Jukebox, perhaps made more efficient and more economical than it's ever been so far. And given the success of iTunes in the digital world, there is no doubt that iCloud is going to be similarly successful, Jim. I don't think Amazon and Google are going to be able to hang with Apple once the iCloud gets rolling. No, I think you're right, Greg. I think that they don't know that it's an Apple universe, and we're just lucky that Steve Jobs lets us live in it. (laughs) 
Yet another of the big peer-to-peer file sharing services has bitten the dust. LimeWire. Last year they got put out of business in a court proceeding. Now they're going to pay a significant fine to the four major record labels for enabling users to trade music files. $105 million, Jim. There's been a long line of these peer-to-peer file sharing services that have been put out of business in the last decade. Let's start with Napster. Let's go to Grokster, Kazaa, now LimeWire, one of the most popular services. One by one, the major labels have been going after these services, putting them out of business, getting them to pay fines. It hasn't slowed down, peer-to-peer file sharing. We're still talking about a ratio of about 40, quote-unquote, illegal files being downloaded to every one legitimate file that is being paid for. It's interesting. This fine of $105 million, it's going to the four record labels represented by the Recording Industry Association of America. But let's see how much of that money actually trickles down to the artists whose music was infringed upon by LimeWire. Just Greg, the website The Smoking Gun makes a habit of running the ridiculous writers of some of the biggest superstars in the music world. The writer is the contract that demands a list of specific goodies in the dressing room of the star, lest they not perform because they won't be happy. The latest (laughs) they've put up there is from Katy Perry, and it's a real winner. I tell you, she will not play unless she has exact flowers in her dressing room, white and purple hydrangeas, pink and white roses, never, absolutely never, carnations. Won't take them. She needs to have a couple of floor lamps in the French ornate style, and she needs a couple of cream-colored egg chairs in the Arnie Jacobson style. Because, you know, who can sing without having one of those? She demands of her chauffeurs that they not speak to her or look at her and other stuff like that. She wants some eco-friendly reusable water bottles, no plastic, and they have to be stored in a refrigerator with a glass door. All of that is just silliness. The thing in this 45-page writer that is of interest is that she demands an unspecified number of tickets that will specifically be available to her to sell to resellers for distribution to the public, secondary ticket market sales, or scalpers, as you and I like to call them. Call them what they are. We had Ethan Smith a while back on the show who had done an investigative story about Neil Diamond abusing this practice, holding back a number of tickets so that he can put them out there for bid on online auction sites and pocket that money. It seems very dishonest. You're selling out most of the arena with your name on the ticket to begin with, and then you want a little bit of extra gravy on the side by holding back tickets that are that are basically going to gouge the fans on higher prices. It it was odd to see this actually specified in Perry's contract, and uh, her manager apparently sets the number of how many tickets held back at each show, Greg. Uh, Jim, I gotta say, I long for the days when they said no brown M&Ms in their tour riders. I'm 
unable to waste my energy. I know this life being so beautiful. Maybe parting will help. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that song is called Maybe Partying Will Help from the classic 1984 album Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen. Our guest today is the Minutemen's bassist, Mike Watt. He formed the band in San Pedro, California with drummer George Hurley and his larger-than-life boyhood friend, lead singer and guitarist Dee Boone. Now, in 1980, when the band came together, punk rock was all about fighting against the norm, but the hardcore punk scene imposed a lot of unwritten rules along the way about how a punk band could and could not sound. Well, the Minutemen were having none of that. They performed in the spirit of the 1980s, the DIY spirit. They called it Econo. Now, Dee Boone died in a car accident in 1985, cutting the band's career short, and Watt went on to have a prolific solo career, playing in numerous bands and collaborating with everyone from Dave Grohl to Iggy Pop, but he's still possibly best remembered for his role in the Minutemen and that classic album. So when we sat down with him recently while he was on tour, we wanted to talk about the genre-blurring album that was Double Nickels on the Dime. When you went into the recording of, of this record, did you guys have this idea that, yeah, we're going to blow out the boundaries here a little bit in terms of what kind of music we play and how it's perceived, or was it, it just sort of happened that way? Uh, the Minutemen was a uh, kind of trippy situation, because you're right, you're, we were playing in the hardcore scene, but we actually learned it in the 70s from uh, a band like No Mercy, where there's a drummer and a singer, and that's it, or the Screamers, they don't even have a guitar, or these bands we never seen from England where they were just sounds, where they put P-Funk with Beefheart. And so when hardcore came, and it was much younger people, and it was more of a fast guitar, those people from the 70s, a lot of them, especially in the Hollywood, they quit. Mm-hmm. So the only people coming to the shows are these young people. So the context is kind of strange. Even though it's not that many years, it had changed. Now, Double Nickels, in uh, I think it's November of 83, we get together a bunch of songs to make an album with uh, Ethan James. We traded a song for his compilation. And he says, I'll do one free for you. Well, we put three together and kind of fooled him. Anyway, we liked the way he worked. So we got a bunch of songs together to make an album. Huh? Then the Hooskers come to town in December, and they make this an arcade. They make a double album. And we were like, whoa, we should have a double album too <laughs> so we wrote another batch of songs mm-hmm. and in i think march we record another these were two-day sessions mm-hmm. and then we have the double album you know but we had no they were two, two different ideas so we had to invent a thing to make because they had a concept some young man in a, a video arcade thing quarters when you dropped in these quarters right that that's what bob told me something like this it's an arcade right mm-hmm. and uh Ours were two worlds apart, but we wanted one, too. So what I'm trying to show you is, like, we were very part of the movement, even though we were separate, like you say, Mm -hmm. because we thought that was a point. Our band was supposed to have their own sound. We were very motivated by the cats, be it those people we didn't know in the 70s, but going to the gigs and listening to records, and then peers, like Black Flag, who's going to meet puppets, that we're actually playing with. Mm -hmm. You don't copy, but you kind of inspire.
But anyway, so we came up with this idea. We had to unite it somehow. Deep Boom was very upset at Sammy Hagar calling himself the Red Rocker. <laughs> because, <laughs> like, he was supposed to be all rowdy and uh, uh, rebellious or something. Well, he but couldn't it, drive 55. Yeah, it was just about breaking the speed limit. And Deep Boom says, okay, we'll drive the speed limit, but we'll make crazy music. Mm-hmm. So this is where the title comes from. So Double Nickels on a Dime right. is a reference to I Can't Drive 55. But then we're thinking about double albums. I'm a Gumma by Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. where each guy's got a solo quarter of an album. So each of us is going to have a solo song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, And that's about it mm-hmm. as far as our concept. Mm-hmm. It was mixed in one night. Wow. Ethan James, yeah. We didn't trust herself. We thought we were too close. None of the Minutemen. We always trusted the knob man, either mm-hmm. Spot or Ethan. I ended up paying for the record. It was $1,100 altogether. It cost. Wow. Big piece of change for us, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 45 me. songs. I know, I know. <laughs> if we I know. evened it out per song, yeah. it's not that bad. It was, that was the difficult part, though, is how were we going to put it in order and somehow mm-hmm. have this concept, right? What I figured is, well, in those days, it's vinyl, right? So the needle's usually on the outside, so put the lame ones hugging the label. And what we'll do is we'll draw, we'll draw straws. You know, we'll draw straws and pick. And the guys would pick their favorite songs would be on the outside. And then the ones nobody picked, that would go on side chafe, right? Right, mm-hmm. the fourth side. So Georgie gets first pick. And what's he pick? He picks his solo song. <laughs> okay. Uh, D. Boone got second pick. He got the, what I thought was our best song was Anxious Mofo for that time. Georgie wrote the words, De Boone, the music. De Boone had this Econo guitar solo. And then I got third pick, and I got the Mike Jackson. I actually did write, send them that song. Political song for Michael Jackson. For him to sing. sing. I never got a reply back. I just thought, <laughs> you know, the Minutemen the men, the men message, if this man would do one of our tunes, I wasn't thinking about royalties or anything. I just thought it would reach. Because De Boone thought, you know, the whole idea of Minutemen with the words was thinking out loud. And this guy could get across these... Three guys from Pedro thinking out loud. I, I know it was mm-hmm. kind of stupid thinking. But. Well, you know, there's apparently hours and hours and hours, if not weeks, of material in the Jackson archives. We may yet find out that he did. That his he did version. do a cover. <laughs> okay. I must look like a dork. Me naked with textbook poems, bound against the Nazis. The weird. Kind of sexy boy. It's peaches that are big damn stuff. If we heard more than shells, we cuss more in our songs and cut down the guitar solos. Well, let's talk a little bit about that song, Mike. Yeah. It's great. There's no, 
Other than the title, there's no references to MJ in the song. But the lines are great. You had a very stream of consciousness style, where Debone, I guess, was more literal. You're a little more abstract, but uh, the lines, and you just quote a few things. Being born is power. I love that. The music drops out, and Debone says, "I must look like a dork." If we had oh, heard... I got that from Cream Magazine. Yeah, there was a Lester Bang thing with Ig, mm-hmm. and they, you know how they bowled out a thing. Yeah. He said, I must look like a dork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the pull quote, right? Yeah, right? the pull quote. Right, exactly. If we heard mortar shells, we'd cuss more on our songs and cut down on guitar solos, yeah. followed by, by a guitar, guitar solo. solo. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> what's going on in, in sort of writing this? Why did you think Michael Jackson should sing this? And, and what was it in this? Oh, well, he reached a lot of folks. Yeah. And, and then he would hear us thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. I was really trying to be clear mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about that. Like with the mortar shells, right? Maybe if you were under attack, it'd be a little different than living in a harbor town in the U.S. I was just the whole context meant a lot to us, I thought. Mm-hmm. This is what really impressed us about England punk. Just them singing their own accent, but singing about, yeah, we're a garage band. Like they're, what's really going on with them? Before, we didn't know what words were for. They were like a lead guitar sound. You know, the smoke's on the water, the fire's in the sky. I guess they were actually being literal, too. <laughs> yeah, it was about but a fire us, in Montreux. Yeah, yeah, we thought it was a bong or something. Well, I, I think it, it needs to be said that at that time, uh, you were coming out of that very commercial era, that 70s. Uh, arena, you know, rock. Radio rock, yeah. arena rock. Radio rock, arena rock. To express yourself in this way, there was no hope for you. It was like, you're not going to get a record deal. Nobody's no, going to no. want to see you play. You no, had to absolutely. do it this way. You couldn't do it that way. Look what you said, the expression. We never thought of music as expression. We thought it was more like building models and you'd copy the record. This thing where, yeah, you had something to get out. That was a whole new idea for us. Even though we had been working out these licks trying to copy, this whole other angle about music where you're trying to express yourself was very new to us. Arena rock, you could never imagine yourself being that. Right. But in a club, when we first saw a gig, the first thing I said to D. Boone is, we can do this. We'll continue talking about the Minutemen and Double Nickels on the Dime with bassist Mike Watt in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ and PRX. And later in the show, Greg and I go gaga.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we've been talking with Mike Watt of the Minutemen. That's their song, Two Beads at the End, from their landmark 1984 album, Double Nickels on the Dime. Now, the Minutemen really set the standard for the low-cost, efficient, do-it-yourself attitude of that era, or as they put it, jamming Econo. And that set the stage for what we know as indie rock today. Now, their music also expanded the definition of punk, incorporating the influence of jazz. We're talking about the music of John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman figuring as importantly in their music as that of the Germs or the Sex Pistols. So that's the point where we wanted to return to our discussion with Mike Watt. We had never heard jazz as kids. We thought they were punk guys that were older. The music was so wild, (laughs) it sounded like the stuff we were hearing at the gigs with the Germs. Mm -hmm. I found out later this thing happened in the 50s, late 40s. It was a trip. And then, you know, Coltrane had been dead for like 10 years already. I just didn't, I didn't know. We didn't know it was an emotional thing, and we wanted to be like that. One, one dude we did know about, though, was Beefheart mm-hmm. and, and the Stooges. We knew about them doing punk music before they called it punk. And that surprised us. You know, punk for us at first was pictures. No, we never heard it, right? They were writing about it and stuff. And you, then when we heard it, it was, seemed like it was more of a thing in the mind. It wasn't really a style of music. It was like whoever was doing it, that was their version of it. We like that. Well, what you just said is really interesting to me because there was this rule book, it seemed like. that There was the punk hardcore rule book. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you guys didn't seem to – you never bought the rule book. No, because I told you it's weird because we were festered in the 70s – festered, Mm -hmm. uh, incubated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Clumsy wouldn't work. And so – and then – but then the context is hardcore because those – it was so quick, man. That those people burned out so quick. Mm-hmm. And then it was these young people from the suburbs playing this rule book thing. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Somebody told me there's a Broadway play of Green Day now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is. Yes. And when yeah. I played the Hot Topic thing at the Warp thing, I thought we were going to discuss. They told me it's a store at the mall where you buy punk clothes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't discuss intense things. <laughs> this is what the hot That's topic what it's become, is. Yeah. You know? it's, yeah, yeah, isn't that? I would have never guessed that. It was so outside. I thought there'd be a little fringe thing always. Whatever, things move and happen. The context we were in, actually, Double Nichols, I had just read Ulysses, mm. right? James Joyce. Yeah. There's, a many, there's a song on there. June 16th. Uh, yeah, tell me about that. Ulysses. Inspiring it's a heavy song. book. I mean, that's a... That's a I don't heavy think book. anybody expects a, a rocker, let alone a punk rocker, to be reading Ulysses and yeah. writing a song about no, it. No, I mean, I have, you have to take a class and have a teacher <laughs> lead you through it, and you still don't get it. I got to give credit to this book somehow without being all out, trying to impress people like, uh, oh, I read this and you didn't. So I just put Mm -hmm. the date, and so people who did read it would know, kind of. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, it's full of word, word, word. I thought, well, we'll make this instrumental with no word, and I try to get the feeling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The word thing was trippy for us. We thought it was really about being yourself in front of people. They weren't gratuitous. You really had to put up and not just use cliché. Likely, of course, you got on one syllable Anglo-Saxon. 
You're listening to Sound Opinions. We're here with Mike Watt, uh, Greg Cott, and Jim DeRigatis. We're talking about Double Nickels on the Dime, the Minutemen's great 1984 album. Mike, I wanted to follow up on that. It felt, when you would hear you guys sing live, or even on this record, it felt like the words were almost being made up on the spot. Yeah. It was very spontaneous. It was, it was literally like that stream of consciousness as opposed to just, oh, it's a song with a verse and a chorus and a bridge and yeah. all these structured parts. I mean, I had this image when I was scanning you know, that, the credits of this album of this group of stoner beatniks <laughs> sitting around, you know, much like Kerouac, Burroughs, and Ginsburg, you know, just riffing and, and, and coming up with these words. And it was this avalanche of words, just like it was this tornado of music. You know, we got the idea from Wire. Because we want, we felt a little tainted because them dudes you could tell were learning right when they were doing. There's great danger, danger for the loneliest stranger in town. No silver bullets, bullets. The dust with the stain. Next week we'll solve your problems. But now, between us all and the But we owed so much to the, the, the Wire band for enlightening us. We felt safe about putting the lead guitar solo after. And we had to make fun of that. Mm-hmm. We had to make fun of ourselves in a way mm-hmm. to somehow find our own voice. Because we could, if you have respect for Wire, you don't copy them. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you guys weren't copying anyone, and that's the thing that was so mind-blowing about it. You, you know, you weren't going to be accepted instantly because you were different. What was the inspiration you took? You said, okay, Zen Arcade was a huge influence. To do a was, double was, album. It, was your mind blown by the music on there, or was it just the concept? I mean, We thought that was Husker music, Yeah, and you wouldn't want to copy it. They were brothers of ours in spirit. We were inspired by uh, their audacity. When you went to a gig, they never played you the stuff you had on a record. They always played you the next record. They were an album ahead. So everybody be... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Nobody knew any of the songs. Talk about Unmersh, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You play them all the next record. And at the same time, there was a respect for your elders, the guys who paved the way. I mean, you covered... Van Halen, you covered Steely Dan, yeah. you covered Creedence Clearwater Revival yeah. on this record. So where was that coming from? It Was it just a Creedence, little tip of the hat to those guys? Creedence was like, D. Boone said, people should listen to his words. Mm-hmm. So we'll play it like Curtis Mayfield would play it. Don't look now. Yeah. And it's 
but it's recorded at the Club Lingerie up in Hollywood with all these people yammering. Carducci did that. Credence was really heavy to us uh-huh. without uh, knowing it in a way. But this idea of Curtis Mayfield, play it like Curtis Mayfield, this was the whole thing, this juxtaposition thing, us learning uh, deeper truths. Somebody once said, the only thing new is you finding out about it. And this is where the Minutemen was. It was like the whole thing was open to us where you could actually make up your mind about things. Deep Boone says, we're going to divide the world into two categories. There's going to be gigs and flyers. And everything that ain't the gig is a flyer. (laughs) Yeah, you could do like stuff what, like this, you understand? Mean, what did he mean by that? Because the gig, the punk gigs, was such an, a mind blow to us. It seemed like there was nobody in between you and the listener. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No filters. So a record, an interview, a picture, all these things were to get people to the gig where you had the most control. Okay. Now I've, I've, I've learned that a record actually is work uh, in the noun. It's here after you're gone. Yeah. Like children almost. You know, people ask me why you do what you do now. It's all from them days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was just turned on to us, you know, and then we just got into it. So the Creedence all of a sudden, John Fogarty's words, really intense, especially with Dee Boone. So that's why we did that there. The Steely Dan, we didn't know what they were singing about. Katie lies, you can see it in her eyes. And match my surprise. I kind of thought, because you could write your own trip into it because you don't know what they mean anyway, you know. <laughs> Is there gas in the car? Yeah, there's gas in the car, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that threw me, I got to confess. No. I, was, I was all the way into you guys, but what are they doing covering Van well, It's like when the replacements covered Kiss. It's like, no, 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 no there's nothing but, cool about Kiss. No, but we put it in the wire, this idea of that wire could purify anything even something like that <laughs> by making it so econo yeah that it would turn it into a whole another thing you know mm-hmm. but we just we were looking at it through our own experience what wire did to us yeah you were kind of performing a service though for the youngins at the time who were unaware of some of the stuff that came before and yeah. maybe pointing okay. them back in that direction much like the stones did for the blues men back in the 60s i would say you know same kind of thing but at the same time, Mike, you yeah, had yeah, yeah. a history lesson part two, yeah. which is basically the story of your band. Yeah. A great, great song. It spawned the title of Michael Azarod's book, oh, Our yeah. Band Could Be Your Life. Yeah, you and uh, you name-checked John Doe and yeah. Bob Dylan and Richard Hell, yeah. Blue Oyster Cult, Joe Strummer. Yeah. You were sort of throwing a little bit of a little love back at your forebears, saying, you know, we didn't invent this stuff. It's, it's coming from, from, a, from a place. Our band of scientists rock. But I was E. Bloom and Richard Hell, Joe Strummer, and John Doe. Me and Mike Watt playing a guitar. actually wrote it for the young hardcore guys who thought we were Martians from Planet Jazz. Yeah. And, and I was trying to say, you know, in a way, we're just like you. This mm-hmm. is me and my buddy. We're 
just trying to play and make a band and find her voice, just like what you're tr- trying to do. Mm-hmm. There's scary things about not having an orthodoxy. Do, am I right? Do I belong? Even though that's what brought you to the movement in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's so trippy, some of the inherent con- uh, contradictions of our scene, because it's about not fitting in. Mm-hmm. Then you create something to fit in. So I just said, well, here's me and my, this most genuine thing. This is why I, I do it. I'm not even a musician. I do this to be with my guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe you can see something in that. of man I work my way backwards using cynicism I want to get back to the musicianship on the record because it's extraordinary you on bass Debu on guitar Hurley on drums primarily Were you all self-taught? Because, you know, I thought these guys are like the best players I've ever heard, you know, at the was time. A, it was like, you know, they're playing on a jazz level even though they're playing punk rock. Well, uh, there was a hippie guy named Roy Mendez Lopez who lived in his car who showed us how to copy off records. Mm-hmm. That was the culture. You just wanted to learn someone else's tunes. Right. We didn't know one guy who wrote his own songs. His big thing was practice, practice, <laughs> which we found out about Coltrane. was like 10 hours a day. So we got into that kind of stuff. Maybe that's how we... Uh, Learn some stuff. But it was all self-taught. Nobody was yeah, teaching you guys. No. You guys were learning off records and teaching yeah. each other basically how to play. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I tried to take music in school, okay? I was in seventh grade, and just after I met D. Boone, and they gave me the clarinet, right, because I want to play sax like that. And after 10 weeks, uh, Mr. Luna, his name is Mr. Luna, Mr. White, you know, you try hard, but... <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to have a music <laughs> career. Well, uh, he had a very gentle way of pu- oh, putting it. God. He says, stop wasting your time, stop wasting my time, stop wasting our time. Jam and Econo. Yeah. It's a phrase we've heard several times from you, Mike. Yeah. Explain the Econo philosophy. Because well, it's, it's a, a unique take on DIY. Econo meant with whatever you have, you was you don't worry if you got the right things. Which coming from working people is very pragmatic. <laughs> you don't have to have the right guitar, very you don't have the big yeah. amp, you big don't have time. To, right. you don't need anything except the will. Because it seemed like, again, this thing, uh, this, uh, the arena rocket turned into kind of a royalty thing. You needed certain kinds of things. The other thing I wanted to ask was about, you, you were talking about not fitting in in so many ways. D-Boom was a big man. Yeah. He didn't look like a rock star. And no. then here he is fronting this band. Was he daunted at all? I mean, you talk so much about these humble beginnings in the bedroom. Then yeah. suddenly he's up on stage. And, yeah. and, and you know, as big as he is, there's nothing to hide behind. But, or, or did he just take to it? Did he embrace it? The only cat I've seen even close to his work ethic is Ig. Where, where we're going to do this gig. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really intense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think because D. Boone took blows because of uh, yeah image and stuff, I'm going to work this, not better than you, but I'm going to try my hardest to play this guitar and dance around and sing out my thoughts out loud to you. I'm going to show you. Very, very earnest. A lot of times we're coming up to play the gig and the roadie's pulling him off the stage. Sometimes me, uh, because they don't believe we're in the band. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Looks like the road crew. Yeah. D. Boone did not live to see the alternative explosion of, you know, a basic tenet of Azerod's book, which Greg mentioned before, Our Band Could Be Your Life, you know, is that you guys and the Hooskers and the replacements paved the way for this explosion of commercial success in alternative rock. And suddenly, the whole Jam and Econo thing is left out. Everybody wants tour buses again, like, yes, everybody in the band, everybody in Smashing Pumpkins got to have their own tour bus. Did something get lost from that era? I think 
Pat Boone sold more Tutti Fruities than Little Richard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't think it's an exactly new kind of no. phenomenon of humans doing this. Well, you were talking before about impermanence, that, that it was all about the moment and, and the flyer and the gig, right? Yeah. But now, obviously, there's, there's this uh, added heaviness to double nickels on the dime. When you listen to this record now, do you think of your friend, D. Boone? Does it bring you back? Is this the fitting memorial? Is this the piece of work that stands for him? Yeah, I think uh, it was the high point of the Minutemen. Without ever being intent, it just happened. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, things have an arc. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've never thought about that, Jim, about that. But I, I think it's the best record I ever played on. And when I hear him on there, it's like he could jump out of the speakers. He's very alive to me. I, I can, uh, yeah, sometimes it's the best way to think of him because of him playing and yeah. us playing with him. And he made music and, and things big for me and alive. And happening. Working on the edge, losing my self-respect. Poor man who presides over me, the principles of his creed. Punch in, punch out, eight hours, five days. Sweat, pain, agony, on Friday I'll be paid. This ain't no Perspective-wise, what impact, if any, do you think that album's had on, you know, the kind of music that you appreciate? Do you see the impact at all of that record? I mean, it, 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 to my mind, it still stands out as something really different for that time. Oh, yeah. So where do you think the impact has been, if any, if any, over the last 20, 30 years? Well, our idea was back then, you know, if bozos like us would do this, maybe other people would try and find their thing. It would make it safe for going, like people said, make it safe for going crazy. Mm-hmm. I think in, in some ways there's stuff like that. Like we were just using just like meat puppets and Husker and Flag guitar bass drums. And you could come up with different sounds and stuff and just go for it. It has been an absolute pleasure talking about Double Nickels on the Dime, one of the great albums, certainly of our era, Greg. Thank you, Mike Watt, for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Greg and I have new album reviews of Lady Gaga and Death Cab for Cutie. But first we want to remind you to share your own sound opinions on the air. Got a take on what's going on in the music world? Call 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and you are hearing the title track from the new Lady Gaga record, Born This Way. The most anticipated album of 2011, some people feel that way. Certainly she has hyped herself to the heavens over the last couple of years. You cannot escape this woman. She is everywhere. That wasn't the case two or three years ago. She was a scuffling artist in New York City. Stephanie Germanata played at Lollapalooza a few years ago on a side stage. Barely noticed. No one paid attention. Then, out of the blue, in 2008, burst forth with The Fame, an album that uh, went on to sell millions of copies. In fact, worldwide, we're talking about 22 million albums sold, 69 million singles. That's pretty phenomenal in this age when uh, people supposedly aren't buying music anymore. She has been touring steadily for the last couple of years. So putting out this follow-up was no small feat. She basically recorded much of it on her tour bus after gigs while touring the world's stadiums and arenas. Now we have it, Born This Way. We're going to review it in a second, but let's play a track from it first. It's called Bloody Mary from Lady Gaga on Sound Opinions. Love is just a history that they may prove And when you're gone, I'll tell them my religion's you When punctures come to kill the king upon his throne I'm ready for their stones I'll dance, dance, dance with my hands, hands, hands above my head Gaga giving us an homage to Bloody Mary from her new album Born This Way. Greg, older boys, formerly both of us, uh, that would be Mary Magdalene she's singing about there. She also sings about Judas on a song here and numerous references to other things designed to tweak the Catholic Church. Hmm, dance pop tweaking the Catholic Church. Where have we heard that before? Madonna, of course. Problem number one with this record. A much, much bigger problem than ripping off Madonna. Problem number two, a previously closeted fondness for 80s hair metal cheese rock 
pomp. She's aping poison and warrant here on some songs. She's bringing in the worst cheese dog saxophone player of all time, Clarence Clemens, to do a Bruce Springsteen kind of rip. She's hiring Mutt Lang, the big 80s hair metal producer, to tweak some of these songs. Who knew Gaga had this mullet-wearing shopping mall past? What I loved about the music on The Fame and The Fame Monster was that she was incorporating really sophisticated electronica, mostly from Euro disco, into this kind of dance pop that we've been living with in America for so long. She was doing it in an interesting way. And, of course, then there's the -the over-the-top gimmickry of her public image, her uh, postmodern ironic take on fame and all the celebrity trackings. But here, she's way over the top with the music and also the singing. That's the last problem and the biggest. We know she can really sing. We know she has musical smarts. Why she's trying so hard here, I don't understand. I really wanted to like this. I like what Gaga is doing with her pro-woman, pro-diversity, be-yourself, anti-groupthink messages. But this album on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale is like a double trash it. It's painful. I'm surprised to hear you say that because you're the biggest Meatloaf fan I know, and this has got Meatloaf written all over it. All she needs is Jim no, Steinman to help her produce it. I that mean, is an insult to the loaf. You're right about the cheesy references. I mean, it is so overblown, so over-the-top, so neo-operatic, whatever you want to call it. She herself described the beats as sledgehammer. And my biggest problem with the record is that it just does not let up. She had no sense of pulling back and what's going to work as a complete album. There's touches of flamenco and blues in here, but the primary influences I hear are a combination of glam rock and four-on-the-floor pounding disco drums. There's very little variation in those beats. This is meant to be blared loud and clear in stadiums and arenas and clubs, and it doesn't really work in any other kind of environment. The other thing here, if the first album was about her predicting her own fame, the message here on the second album is like, hey, everybody else come aboard. Everybody's a star. Very strong messages to the gay and transgender world, but I think she's including just about anybody here who has ever felt dissed by society. And that's a strong message. But as you said, I think, Jim, the weakest part of this album, lyrically, I expected a lot more of her. I think she's a really smart, creative person. The lyrics here are just plain dumb. I'm not going to trash it because there are some stuff on here that I really like. I'm going to give it a burn it, but I think she can do much better. You Are a Tourist from the seventh studio album by Death Cab for Cutie here on Sound Opinions. Codes and Keys is the name of the new one, Greg. A couple of years in the making. We haven't heard from Death Cab since 2008 with Narrow Stairs. At that point, they debuted at number one on the Billboard Albums chart, and they were the little band from Bellingham, Washington, that was the indie underground mope rock 
don't say emo, favorite for many, that suddenly became an arena rock band and enough of a household word to be made fun of on the OC. Remember when Summer turned to Seth and said, all these guys are is one guitar and a lot of complaining? It was a funny line. She wasn't really accurate because there have always been two guitars in the band, for one thing. Chris Walla, who has been the production genius behind Death Cab for Cutie, and Ben Gibbard, who's the main voice and the songwriter. Gibbard has said that the touchstone for recording this album was Another Green World by Brian Eno. He said it, I didn't. That was their goal going into the studio, and also to be a little more expansive in the emotions captured here. Mr. Gibbard is a happy fellow these days. He happens to be Mr. Zoe Deschanel. He got married. He stopped drinking. These are all things that make him a little sunnier than the mope rock past would lead you to believe. What kind of music is Death Cab for Cutie giving us? Let's play a track. We'll come back with our reviews. This is Doors Unlocked and Open by Death Cab for Cutie on Sound Opinions. Death Cab for Cutie with a song called Doors Unlocked and Open from their new album Codes and Keys, seventh studio album from this uh, Pacific Northwest band. I like the sonic experimentation. Uh, You mentioned the obligatory Eno reference. Thank you, Jim. I think Chris Walla does a fine job as the producer on this album of creating those sort of textures and making this sort of a three-dimensional listening experience. The last record was very much the band on the floor, in the studio, recording in a, in a very much of a live setting. This one is a much more elaborate studio creation. I like being pulled into their world. I like, in particular, the very underrated rhythm section. People talk a lot about uh, Ben Gibbard as a singer and a lyricist, and they talk a lot about Chris Walla as sort of the band's secret weapon with his production. But i, I got to give it up for Nick Harmer's bass. It is a key instrument in the way this music sounds. Now, the themes. Everybody says, okay, Ben Gibbard's happier. He, he married this Hollywood actress, and therefore he's no longer writing about disintegrating relationships. But there's still a lot of anxiety here. I think the big theme is this idea of home and where, where is it. This album is about searching for something. And sometimes it can be in your own head. It gives this album more of a sense of tension 
and maybe more about maturity than I ever expected to hear from these guys. So these bigger themes, I think, work in really well with the production on the record. I love this record. I think it's a buy it as far as I'm concerned. I couldn't agree more. I love it as well, and it's a buy it from me. I think the key was on 2008's, uh, the last album, I Will Possess Your Heart, a song that they played live when they came on Sound Opinions back then. But that was a weird down-tempo song about about imagining yourself as a stalker. Here, they're kind of taking those grand epics and being a little more upbeat. I I disagree. The man is happy. He's singing, Life is sweet in the Valley of the Beast when her song is in your heart. Well, thanks, Ben. I'm glad you're upbeat. And when the musical settings are as strong as what Walla has crafted, they're amazing and good for Death Cab for Cutie. A double buy it. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are wrapping up our trilogy of tributes to Bob Dylan on his 70th birthday with part three of our series. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our talk with Mike Watt was recorded by Mary Gaffney. And our intern, Nick Myers, is leaving us this week. If he was a song from Double Nickels on the Dime, he would be Mr. Robot's Holy Orders. Our producer, Robin Lynn, if she was a Minutemen song, she would be Jesus and Tequila. Our other producer, Jason Saldana, he would be Anxious Mofo. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, He'd be little man with a gun in his hand. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Jim, hi Greg. My name is Alan. Just listened to your review of the Feelies album and have no problem and no qualms with your review. But I'm noticing something in the last couple of weeks that's kind of annoying. Between the Feelies and Titus Andronicus and Vivian Girl, getting a sense that you guys, or at least Jim, that's really like to lose yourself in a wall of sound. If it's lyrically oriented, like Springsteen, boy, one of you really hates that. There's a lot of great melodic rock music out there right now. You had Titus Andronicus on, you talked about New Jersey, but you paid no lip service to Gaslight Anthem, which is writing some great rock and roll songs. They're from New Jersey. great stuff out there. Please give it to us. Talk about it. Because the world of the Vivian girls and Titus Andronicus and the Feelies, it's fun for about 20 minutes. And then, you know, you've got to move on. Keep it up. I love your show. Give me some more melodic rock and roll. Hi, Jim and Greg. My name is Rachel. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was really excited when I saw on my iTunes that there was an episode about Riot Girl. Because I thought, finally, like a really great inclusive, you know, history of women in music. For Riot Girl, we had 10 years in the mid, you know, 80s and early 90s. And that's not girl music. That's not feminism in music. And I understand that girls in music are different than Riot Girl, but feminist music continues. And, and the DIY feminist, you know, third wave movement continues. 
And you guys didn't talk about that at all. I found the whole thing to be totally lip service. I'm probably overreacting, but Riot Girl is near and dear and beloved to my heart. And I make a point to listen to women in music. And I find it offensive that that's all we get on your amazing show, which pays so much homage to the most amazing male singers. I wanted more. That's what I have to say. Thanks. Bye. Jim from Ferndale, Michigan. Just want to thank you guys for playing Faith and Toyland on the radio. It made my day. It was awesome. Great gem from the early 90s that a lot of people skip over. So thanks. Keep it up. The good work. guys, it's Jape down Durham, North Carolina. While I love your show, I really, really must disagree with your review of the new Cars album. The mere existence of this album is a sheer delight to longtime car fans, and the fact that they were able to recreate much of their early sound, as well as reference groups they've influenced over the last core century, like Rosebuds and LCD Sound System, it's a reason to celebrate. Really, this is the first record I ran out to buy on its first day in decades. If hearing a new car song like that makes me feel like I'm in 10th grade again, well, you'll be charged. Keep up the good work. You believe in anything, they tell you how to think. A simple dance, a circle in the raging roller rink. A trading in the alley, we're booking up a storm. Forget about reality, cause nothing is To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.